Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 211, Station Solar Arrays. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. In case you're unfamiliar, the International Space Station's power systems are in the process of getting an upgrade. Over the past few years, the nickel-hydrogen batteries that once stored energy gathered from the station's basketball court-sized solar arrays were replaced with lithium-ion batteries. And most recently, astronauts installed brand-new solar arrays to augment the station's power supply, meaning both the original and the new arrays will collect solar power for the same power channel. So why do we need these power upgrades? Why are the arrays being augmented? How has technology improved? All these questions and more being answered by resident expert Mike Salopek, the International Space Station Power Augmentation Project Manager on this episode. So without further delay, let's get right into it. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Mike Salopek, thanks for coming on Houston. We have a podcast today. I'm happy to be here and talk with you today. All right. Uh, all it's all about station solar arrays today, and I know we are uh, we well we already have started uh, installing new ones. Uh, all that's part of a greater plan. So I really want to get into not only those greater plans, but the technical details of what it means to augment these solar arrays. First, I want to understand a little bit more about you, though, um, to, to understand what it takes to uh, manage a project such as this. So, Mike, tell me about yourself. Sure. So, let's see. I started working at Johnson Space Center back in 2007 after I graduated from college. I went to um, Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Florida, and I got an aerospace engineering degree there. Um, I actually started out on the flight operations side. So I was a flight controller for the space shuttle for a couple of years at the end of the program. And then after that, I moved over and did uh, flight control for, for space station. And then around uh, 2016, I, I became a civil servant and I was looking to expand my horizons a little bit and, and work on uh, some, some actual projects. And I had the opportunity to come to the ISS vehicle office. And uh, at that time, I was working on um, life support systems, exploration life support systems. That was my technical background in flight control. And then uh, starting this summer, uh, I had the opportunity to take over solar arrays and uh, actually docking systems as well for, for the space station uh, program. And it's been uh, a, an interesting learning experience so far. Uh, what's, what's nice about it is that I've, I got to kind of hone the, the decision-making skills and the management skills with a technical background that I was used to and I had touched these things peripherally in my in my background uh, as well, uh, especially on the power side. I mean, all of my systems use this power, so I had to be familiar with the architecture. Um, and then now I get to take uh, the things that I learned uh, managing stuff that I was familiar with, and now I can do and, and start managing things that I'm, I'm less familiar with. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the challenge. It's a very exciting project. Obviously, uh, has it's really important. We'll talk a lot about that later as to why this project is important and what it's going to do for the space station. I want to dive into the solar, the 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 power system though. This is a this is a very interesting um, uh, topic. We've never really dove this deep, I think, into understanding just a single system that that makes the International Space Station work. Um, so, 
what what's interesting though is if you're looking at the space station, one of the main features of the space the shape of the space station are the gigantic solar arrays, and these are the ones that we're augmenting. So, so tell us about a little bit more about the original arrays. What what were what are we working with uh, to to augment? What what are these legacy arrays? Sure. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. And that was one of the things I mentioned. It's it's one of the most iconic features of the space station are these, yeah. these very large solar arrays. So. Uh, a solar array is it exists on uh, on something called a we call it a photovoltaic module or PVM and that contains the structure that is mounted to the rest of the truss. It contains the mechanisms that allow the array to to rotate and point toward the sun. It also contains the batteries and the other electronics that that control uh, uh, the mechanisms and also regulate the power and things like that. Uh, the array itself is, is a part of that PVM, PVM and it kind of consists of three major parts. There's two blanket boxes, which are the, the solar arrays themselves, or what we, they're referred to as blankets. Uh, they're kind of a, a hinged uh, blanket. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. There's one on each side of the array. So if you're looking at one of the, the arrays, there's kind of the two sides that are like blue and orange, and then there's a, in the middle, there's the mast, and that's the structural stiffening mechanism that keeps the arrays deployed and that mast canister when it's folded up that mast is all folded up in there and, and so that's the third part of a particular uh, array um, the pvms are actually only launched one at a time it took many shuttle flights obviously to build the space station so it took at least um at least four to assemble all the solar arrays the last set actually not even arriving until uh 2009 uh, which is coincidentally one of the first shuttle missions that i worked when, whenever i started here um, the blankets themselves, they're very large, right? So if you look at the space station, the space station is very big. The blankets are 115 feet long and 38 feet wide. So they're, they're huge. Um, and the way they're kind of broken up, so on the legacy arrays, they contain over 32,000 individual solar cells, and those are grouped to, together in what we call power strings. Um, those power strings are distributed on the on the 82 panels of, of the blanket. So as I said, the blanket is kind of like a, a hinge. Um, uh, it's kind of like a hinged blanket, and it retracts into uh, into that blanket box or unfurls when it's pulled out, almost like hoisting a sail, if you can imagine imagine that. Well, the blankets, uh, you're, you're, you're drawing comparisons to like a sail. You're, you're using the word blanket, but... Um, is this so? Is it like a so, when when you're talking about these solar cells and, and the, the mm -hmm. actual arrays themselves? Are, are is it a softer material or is it a rigid structure? It's fairly rigid. Uh, it's not. There are things called rigid solar panels. I think Orion is using those, and, and they kind of uh, deploy and or, and work a little differently. But the blanket is a bit of a flexible material. Um, you know the the new arrays the iros is a much more flexible material than 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 the old arrays and the blankets themselves consist of multiple different layers so you have the actual like solar cells on there and then you have like uh varying other layers that provide the structural stiffness and then provide protection from the space environment as well with the temperature there's atomic oxygen uh so uh is a very corrosive um compound that exists in low earth orbit that we have to make sure that the the external parts of the space station can withstand uh, um, exposure to that and that's that's actually one of the reasons why the 
we had to go build new solar arrays is that the legacy solar arrays were degrading a lot faster than we had originally predicted. And then I think one of the key areas that they looked at was they just didn't quite understand the, the degradation of that atomic oxygen, how much of a factor it was. The, you know, the other thing too, uh, it obviously took a long time to build the space station. Again, a lot of these solar arrays came up very early on. I think the first one was launched in like 2001 or 2002 timeframe. And as we were building the space station, you know, we had a lot of shuttle flights coming up. One of the things that also can contaminate arrays, and we do a pretty good job of protecting them, but like propellant plumes and things like that. So there's a lot of stuff in that low Earth orbit environment. And when you have visiting vehicles coming to and from, uh, there's other opportunities for, for contamination as well. Early on in the shuttle program, when we were docked to space station, we would have to do water dumps and things like that while attached to ISS. None of that is really great for, for the external environment of, of the ISS uh, as well. So, uh, you know, there's a variety of factors why the legacy arrays ended up degrading faster. And, and that, that, that I'm sure those are all related. Yeah, and, and that's that's just one component, right? So that's the that's, that's the right. actual arrays. Um, now, now what's interesting is uh, the, the, the arrays themselves, their job, right, is to draw power from the sun that's the main that's right. purpose of them uh is, is to draw that power now when they draw that power it gets put through something i believe called a power channel um what what is that and what is the downstream of that yeah so a power channel is is we've divided up the space station into these eight eight power channels and there are all the components working together to, to get power from the outside to the inside and the users on the inside station, or the, the users on the outside as well. So um, the, the, the array is where it starts, it collects that from the sun. Uh, once the power is generated in the array, it kind of goes to three different places. Um, it's, it's either shunted back to the solar array. So there's something called a sh sequential shunt unit, SSU. And those are actually components that we've had a lot of challenges with um, over the years. Um, they failed prematurely on us and ended up in a, we ended up with a couple of close, almost shortfalls of having spares of, of that unit. Uh, but what that does is uh, that, that is used to regulate the voltage coming out of the array. So the array produces, we, we produce about 160 to 170 volts from the array. Um, and that SSU regulates that voltage because if the downstream users don't require that much power, well, the array is still pointed at the sun, it's still generating all that power. So we shunt the power back into the array and it gets dissipated as, as heat. Um, the way the downstream loads uh, could go is it could also, we would store power into batteries, right? So we're not always pointed at the sun because we have eclipse time frame. Once, you know, about half of our orbit is spent in the shade. We're not generating power there and we have to store power for, for that time frame. So uh, what's not shunted back in the array either gets diverted to the power or to the batteries and then the rest of it gets uh, diverted downstream to the downstream users. And those downstream users could be external components and payloads, things like the core systems, the pumps that keep everything cool, um, or the fans that blow the air out, or it could be a, a payload rack like the combustion integration rack or, or even the lights inside ISS, right? So those are all, all examples of, of downstream loads. And the way, that, the way that that occurs is there's a couple of other components. So one, um, with the batteries, there's a, a battery discharge controller. I think it's a BDCU. And that regulates when the battery needs to start uh, discharging uh, to keep downstream users powered or uh, when it needs to cut off charging of that battery so we don't uh, damage it that way. 
um, the uh, the the power going from the batteries or from the arrays to the downstream users also go through uh, something called a, a, an MBSU, a main bus switching unit. Uh, and what that does, that allows us to direct the power from the arrays down to uh, these different other subcomponents called DDCUs, which are DC current converter units. So as I said, we collect the power at around 160 volts. Our users use it at 124 volts. So we collect it a little bit higher because we have to transport it a fairly long distance from the array down to the truss and then to the inside of the vehicle. So we have to collect it a little higher voltage. So that way, it, it, we're guaranteed to get the 120 volts at, 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 the, at the user level. The, those MBSUs allow us to cross-tie power channels if we need to. So if you remember back, I said, hey, we launched these power, these, these solar arrays one at a time. And for a long time, we only had one solar array wing on the space station, so two, two sides. So that gave us two power channels. Well, we had a bunch of components inside that would be on future power channels that don't exist yet. So the MBSU allows us to kind of cross-tie all of those and allow uh, like one array to power different power channels than it would normally be, be set up for. Um, and that was obviously vital to the early parts of the space station. I don't, we don't really do a lot of that now unless it's a off nominal situation, mainly because you have to be careful if you do that so you don't overload the power channel. So if you all of a sudden, most of our power channels are you know, pretty well subscribed. There's a lot of users on them. And, and if we were to just all of a sudden cross tie one power channel to another, you could also end up taking out of that, taking out that power channel because the voltage will drop too low because there's way too many users downstream, almost like, you know, plugging too many things into your, uh, a socket in your kitchen, you're going to blow a fuse. So something similar like that would happen on, on ISS. Yeah. So we don't, we don't do that too often unless it's a, a dire situation. Yeah, there's only so much power that can be subscribed, and uh, you got a lot of people signing up for that power. So, so yeah, you're, right. you, it's all about management at that point. All right, who really needs it? What are the critical systems? Exactly, exactly. And, you know, to kind of simplify it, uh, if you kind of think about how power gets to your house, right, so you have the solar array, which is like the power plant. You have those distribution substations. Those are like your MBSUs. The transformer on the power pole out in front of your house, that's like the DDCU. You got the wiring going to your house. And then inside or at, at the user level, there's also something called a remote power controller module. And those are like your individual, like your circuit breaker panel outside. And that allows us to turn off, turn on and off power to, to individual uh, users. Um, so any like even like the lighting is on its own RPC as we call it a remote power controller, which is it's just a switch that opens and closes power to that particular unit. There's also an on or off button. So again, it's kind of like you have your circuit breaker outside, but you can flip your light switch on and off as long as that circuit breaker is closed. Um, who's switching the who's flicking the breaker? Is it flight controllers or is it the astronauts or, or is there redundancy? It's prim primarily flight controllers. You know, the crew okay. we try to keep them as as busy as possible, actually running the scientific payloads. You know, there's a lot of stuff that they have to do hands-on. So anytime we have the ability to send a command to the space station to configure the equipment for them to use, we would do that. Uh, they can do it. You know, they have the interface to it. And, and in some contingency situations, uh, they need to. But also for some normal situations, they may elect to, to do it as well. But typically, uh, the Mission Control Center, MCC, handles most commanding of that. And you said uh, back in the day you were a flight controller, mostly with uh, life support. So you were That's working right. with um, 
what's the guy the ethos um ethos yeah that's right i was in yeah. ethos for uh for eight years yeah for, wow okay yeah so so the guy next to you was um i guess power is spartan is that the role spartan that's right and we would we would work a lot together because uh the life support system is one of the main power hogs of the uh of at least the internal part of the space station right i mean our carbon dioxide removal system uses almost a kilowatt of power. Our oxygen mm. generator uses almost a kilowatt of power. We have heaters all over the place uh, that, you know, they add up to using a couple of kilowatts of power if they're all on uh, at the same time and stuff like that. So so we would work very closely with Spartan uh, to help offload and, and reconfigure our system since maybe we had things on a different power channel mm-hmm. um, that we can swap over to that equipment or, or we just didn't need some stuff on, like, you don't always need the heaters on and things like that. Um, and that's, that kind of goes to that management. You know, the Spartans are, are making sure that we don't overload one power channel. What's interesting about ISS, too, is at certain times of year, of the year, we have more power availability than other times of year. And it's, it's because of a, a, the angle of the space station to the sun. We refer to it as the beta angle. If you think of it like on Earth, during the winter, it gets dark earlier and it stays dark longer. Same thing kind of happens on on ISS, and we're at a pretty high inclination, right, 56 degrees. So, um, you know, when a couple of times a year we either have a lot of sunlight or we don't have as much sunlight and we have have to power down systems so we we don't overload the power channels. Now, that's gotten a lot better um, in recent years. You know, we did a big battery upgrade where we replaced the old, um, I think they were nickel hydrogen batteries with lithium ion batteries, so they held... They hold a lot more and they, they aren't degraded, right? We all know that rechargeable batteries degrade over time. Um, and then with the, with the iROSA solar arrays coming up, uh, we are now able to produce a lot more power when we are uh, in sunlight. So those, those batteries are going to charge faster. They're going to hold more charge. And um, that, will, that eliminates a lot of our future issues with, with power manage, management and planning to, so we can run more stuff at the same time. The other interesting thing too, um, and it, it's kind of relevant to the to the new arrays uh, when we start trying to figure out what they're actually doing for us, is twice a year during the orbital solstice. So when the sun is directly head on, it's a beta of zero with with the ISS. So completely head on, just like the solstice here on on Earth, where the sun, you know, is everything day and night are, are um, the same amount of time. That's when we can really gauge the exact performance of our arrays because we don't have to do any kind of uh, beta angle offset with them. And, and we have full, full sun on the arrays and we can really see what they're doing for us. And I think the next solstice is coming up uh, within the next couple of weeks here on, on ISS. So we'll actually get a good gauge of what the new solar arrays are doing for us then. So essentially the, the sun is shining directly on the arrays. You don't need to move them in any sort of way to to get it. Lowest atmospheric inter, inter, um, interference or something. So so it's a pretty reliable measurement. Is that the logic? Exactly. Yeah, it's, okay. it's the most amount of power that they're going to produce, right? So Because we don't have to, to angle the arrays at the sun. And, and you know, with the way that the ISS is configured, um, it's, it's hard to point all of the arrays directly at the sun all the time. There's other challenges structurally with doing that. Um, it's a very complicated uh, uh, issue called Laundron shadowing. So those masts uh, that we have that support the arrays. Uh-huh. Um, if you think about 
deep space is very cold. So when you're facing deep space, it's very cold. And when you're shaded, it can also get very cold. But obviously, if you're in direct sunlight, since there's no atmosphere or anything to help regulate the temperature, the metals heat up very, very quickly as well. So <clears throat> if the arrays shade each other just the right way, it can actually structurally deform the, the mast to the point where they could break. Now, we've prevented that with software controls uh, where we bias the array angles such that that shading doesn't happen. It's very complicated analysis. I'm not even all that familiar with it, but but what it does is it prevents one array from adversely shading those longerons on the other array or itself so that you don't get that uh, temperature difference that's going to cause the metal to bend. If you think of like a bimetallic metal strip, right? It's similar to that, only it's all one metal, and it's just because one side is colder, the other side's hotter, it's going to warp it, and that can cause a major structural failure if you're, if you're not careful. So that's one of the major challenges that we've had to deal with with these legacy arrays, and it goes a lot into the planning and management as well. And that's, that's one of the reasons why we don't always get our desired power generation that we want, because we have to kind of bias these arrays so they don't, we don't end up with that, um, that shading mechanism. Yeah. So this, so the beta zero allows the the least amount of shading, most reliable power draw. With you know, you're, you're limited on the shading, and it sounds like even if it is shading, it's it the the mission is not just collecting as much sunlight as possible. There are thermal constraints that that are part of your decision making as well. That's exactly right, and because and you know the, the other constraints that we have to work to is around what we call dynamic events, so vehicle docking, uh, and undocking, yeah. robotic ops, any kind of. You have to like lock it, right? You have to lock. We have to lock the arrays. Yeah, yep, that's right. And, you know, it was, it was we, one of the concerns when we had that loss of attitude control a couple of weeks ago was what damage could we have done to the arrays with those thrusters fired because they weren't. Fortunately, the Spartan act extremely quickly. Um, I'm not exactly sure who it was on console. I don't know who really works over there anymore, but they, they acted very quickly to get the arrays in, in as safe a config as possible. And, um, and fortunately, we've done bunch of external surveys and, and we haven't uncovered anything to, that I'm aware of yet. We also looked at the, the IROSA array just to make sure it's fine because it's attached a little differently and, and there hadn't, the before and after pictures look almost, they look identical uh, to us and we're still getting good performance out of everything. But, you know, that was between the station moving differently than what it should be, right? That is going to uh, put stress on the structure when they're very large, you have large moments and everything. And then also with the thrusters firing kind of unexpectedly and then unanalyzed, they're pointing, those thrusters were not meant to do that. They're not supposed to do it. We have analysis to show what they would do to our uh, external components. So, uh, you know, we're still sorting through the, the impacts of that, but it kind of ties into how difficult it is to manage these really large uh, arrays. There's a lot, there's a lot that you don't necessarily think about right away uh, that, that goes into it because, as you pointed out, it's, it's not just necessarily about collecting power. Right. Yeah, all these different constraints, uh, stru structural, thermal, all of that. And then on top of that, you said, uh, you know, early on in um, in your description of what, what these power channels are, you talked about that the, the legacy array is the one that we've talked about. And, we, and we've alluded to the new ones, IROSA. That's, I think mm -hmm. that's the main main thing we want to talk about. But you mm -hmm. said that, but that there's been degradation. Now, yes. now, what is that? Um, and you said there's there's some environmental things. You know, it sounds like this is something that might just happen over time. What exactly is happening to the legacy arrays that they are degrading? So you have you have atomic oxygen reacting uh, with the the materials to kind of uh, degrade the 
the, the cell's ability to generate power from the sun. There's also space debris, uh, micrometeorological debris, MMODs. Um, they can create small perforations in the arrays and, and hit cells and, and completely take those out. We have a couple of actual just failed power strings, which is a collection of solar cells uh, on, on each array. So that all uh, leads to degradation. Um, any kind of deposits from thruster firing or other um, uh, other contamination uh, will deposit on the arrays and, and, and you know block some of that solar energy from activating those solar cells as well. Mm -hmm. uh, all solar arrays degrade, right? It's just it's just something that comes with with using it because you know the the components uh, not the, they don't really wear out, but they they get deposits on them. The the harsh environment of space. Um, changes the, the the electrical generation properties of of the solar cell material and all that leads to less power generation over the course of a, a lifetime of array and when we write requirements and we build these systems we we often levy what we call an end of life power generation requirement and that allows us to size the array uh, for the power that we needed to generate after X number of years in service, right? So I think the, the legacy mm -hmm. arrays were originally designed for a, a 10 or 15 year service life. We've obviously gone well beyond that, um, especially for some of the early ones that have been up there and we plan on going even further. Uh, the new arrays, the IROSAs are also designed for a 10 year service life and, and they were levied the requirement to generate 20 kilowatts of power per array um, at the end of its, of its service life. So you have to take into account these predicted uh, um, the degradation rates, which we've learned a lot more since the legacy arrays, and we would apply that to, to the IROSA design to ensure that we don't get uh, some of the unexpected higher degradation than what we were planning before. You obviously apply some sort of conservative factor of how much you're willing to, uh, to risk the end-of-life power generation, and that's how you size how many power strings you need and how big the array needs to be. Mm-hmm. And so, so why is it important that we continue, you know, that you, you have this normal degradation, um, you know, mm -hmm. why, why not just deal with the degradation and, and just, you know, pick and choose which things you want to cover? What's important about maintaining um, continued power levels on the station? Yeah, great question. So, you know, the primary purpose of ISS is to perform uh, scientific experiments for a variety of, of our customers, uh, including... We're getting ready to have a commercial module come to ISS within the next couple of years as well. And we're going to be providing a lot of the power to that module. So um, we have all of our existing payload facilities that are on board that have been running for a number of years that, we're, that we uh, want to continue to run going forward. We constantly have new payloads coming up wanting to use you know, more power and things like that. Uh, we've expanded laboratory space on ISS. We have some additional facilities, uh, what we call racks. Um, express racks to, to allow us to run more payloads. Um, all of that has increased the amount of predicted power we're going to need to provide so that way we can continue to run as many experiments as we run. Yeah, you could manage by saying, well, you know, on this many times a year, we're going to have to power down half of our experiments on, on ISS uh, in order to make sure that we can keep the lights on and the air conditioner running, right? If you think of ISS like a, a an actual like office building or or high-tech laboratory facility, you have just the power you need to, to run that facility, but then you also have the power that you need to run your experiments as well. Well, we obviously can't compromise on running the facility, so we'd have to power down some of the experiments. 
that's a big impact to a lot of our customers. You know, some of these experiments, if you shut them off, uh, you could lose uh, valuable data. Some of them, uh, it may ruin the experiment. It may make it more difficult for them to plan. And if we're trying to make ISS um, more useful to a wider variety of customers, we don't want to put, impose additional constraints on managing saying, hey, you know, every October, we're going to have to shut you off for two weeks because we don't have enough power, right? That may cause someone to second guess on flying an experiment to ISS. So we've done this big power expansion project so that way we can support more uh, customers going forward, including commercial module, which will be a huge uh, upgrade uh, to the space station and, allow, and a huge step in the direction of commercializing low Earth orbit, which is a major priority for, for the agency. Uh, they're going to have their own laboratory space now. They'll be able to run more experiments. So, um, and but it also makes it easier for you know universities and, and other companies that want to fly payloads to ISS and not have to worry about trading off between I get to be powered versus you get to be powered and, and things like that. So, and if we want to continue to use ISS going forward, you know, I think we're looking at expanding it to at least. 2028 the legacy arrays are only going to degrade more and that's just less stuff that we'll be able to do when we have more users you know waiting waiting in the wings uh to, to use iss lots of people want to use iss lots of cool experiments the the commercial module you're you're alluding to is axiom space they they want to attach a um uh, their own module to the forward port, and they they won an award for that. So so there's a lot coming up, and and that's a lot of justification to say, hey, this is important. We want to continue to provide power. We don't exactly as you're saying, we don't want, uh, you know, all these experiments that are running, collecting valuable data to just stop because we can't provide the power, right? So we just we that's right. We want to keep providing the power. Now you you mentioned irosis now let's let's get into that this is that new sure. solar array this is the solar array that that is going to be providing that power and it's part of a larger plan but let's start with an irosa what is this new solar array yeah so irosa stands for iss rollout solar array so this this company out in california um called uh, dss i think they were bought by another company called redwire uh within the last year but but they that's this is their intellectual property, right? Like this is their design. They've designed these rollout solar arrays. Um, and, and we actually did an experiment on ISS, I think back in like 2016 or 2017, where we kind of tested out a proof of concept of this design uh, when we were getting ready to select how we want to upgrade our solar arrays. And obviously it performed well. And, um, and we ended up selecting uh, to go build uh, six of these solar arrays to upgrade our, our legacy arrays. Uh, what's nice about them is that you know, the original solar arrays, oh man, I mean, they were probably designed back in the early 90s, right, with the best technology available at that time. Well, solar array technology and materials technology, all these things have progressed hugely since, you know, the, the early early 90s time frame, including the ability to use more composites, uh, things like that. Solar cell density is a lot higher than it used to be. They're more reliable. They last longer, things like that. So... All of that is incorporated in the design, but what the, the kind of the secret sauce of it is the is the way that they are deployed and stored, right? So there's a uh, if you think of um, kind of a wrapped up like paper towel tube or something like that, the array blanket is completely wrapped around that. As mm -hmm. with the uh, structural support boom, which is like a, a composite like carbon fiber. Uh, boom that deploys and that provides the structural rigidity. So instead of metallics 
uh, and, and the little beams that we have and the longerons on the, on the mass canister, it's now a, a, a carbon, carbon fiber composite um, boom. And there's a twist to it to help provide the um, structural stability and rigidity that, that we want for, for the solar rays. So because they're able to be rolled up and they're smaller because we have better density of, of solar rays, things like that, we're able to launch them on a Dragon now. We don't need a big space shuttle uh, to launch them. Um, we also, a lot of the existing infrastructure with the SSU, the MBSU, the DDCUs, the batteries, that's all existing on ISS. So uh, in order to, to fly these solar arrays, we only needed a, a mod kit, uh, which is just a structural attachment points up to the existing solar arrays. And, and the IROS says uh, to, to fly up and we fly, we're able to fly two at a time. And the first two, uh, you know, whether we're earlier this summer. Um, so, you know, again, like I kind of referred to the old solar array deployment as more of like hoisting a sail. These are just like unrolling a, a sheet of, uh, you know, rolling, uh, unrolling paper towel tube or unrolling uh, wrapping paper or something like that. Right. And it, it stays, stays rigid once it's unrolled. See that's that's nice, and I, I like the paper towel analogy. That's that that really helps me to understand sort of how this thing is rolling out. And what's what's cool is if you see it in the dragon, the unpressurized trunk of the dragon. It's kind of like you got this paper towel, and then the way I imagine it is, it's like it's like if you break that into two pieces and and fold it in that's half, right. you can shove two of them in the trunk of the dragon, which is which is pretty remarkable considering that the the legacy arrays were fl were flown on the shuttle. Now we're taking up a lot a lot less space, right? You're folding them up and putting them in the tr trunk of the dragon um you mentioned you mentioned uh dss which was bought by Redwire. i know i know boeing has the contract uh for the solar arrays and and re with Redwire as the sub to make and, and deliver and deliver these um and they're they're going to produce a decent amount of power now that they they're uh they're unrolling right so so That's how right. does how, how does it work now i think let me let me ask you this because what's sure. interesting here is it's not it's not a solar array replacement um, we're not putting this in a new a new area. It's a solar array augmentation. So what is what does that mean? Right. So it, the 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 existing legacy solar array we're still using about half of it. So the the IROSA it attaches to the to the mast canister. There's a structural attachment that I referred to that already as the mod kit, and it, it's just a couple of support beams. Uh, that are attached at angles with with the mass canister that we're we're able to bolt on. There's uh, a couple of wire harnesses that allow us to kind of jumper between the new solar array and, and accept power from the old solar array and route that into the to that SSU to control the the voltage of the, that the arrays produce. And then that the IROSA actually rolls out and it, it covers about half, uh, a little bit more than half of the existing solar array, and those power strings. Are, are essentially deactivated. So the existing, you know, I think I said the existing solar array is 115 feet long. The IROSA is 60 feet long. The old solar array was 38 feet wide. The the IROSA is only 20 feet wide. So it's it's smaller. Um, it does contain less strings. So there's only 48 power strings on on the um, on the the IROSA, but that replaces the 48 power strings. Uh, that we're, we're shading. Uh, actually, we, we shade. Um, yeah, I think we shade about 48 power strings on the on the old array as well. So mm -hmm. total, I think, uh, from a power string perspective, they'll be about the same as, as what we had before. Uh, but 
these these arrays are designed to produce 20 kilowatts at the end of their life with only 48 solar cells, right? So the old arrays were also designed to produce 20 kilowatts at the end of life with you know, many more <laughs> uh, yeah. strings, strings on them. So it, it kind of goes to show you how far the technology has really, um, you know, really advanced there. And as I said, you know, we're able to get some power out of the existing arrays. It, it varies on which one because of some of those other factors I talked about before. The older arrays are more degraded than the ones that came up, you know, back in 2009. Um, some arrays have more failed strings on them than others and things like that. But, uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll be able to produce much more power uh, from each of these power channels uh, once these, these array, the, the, all the iroses are up there. Um, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, because uh, and what what's cool, I think, is um, the way you described it was perfect. It's, it's essentially. It rolls out right in front of the other ones, and it sounds like you're deactivating whatever is shaded, um, and then that's and then whatever this small amount of space, um, like just slightly more than half of the original solar array is generating about the same, um, which is which is remarkable. Um, but it's it's kind of cool because you said how simple this design is. You got the rollout solar array, and you got a ma basically a modification kit as a mounting bracket to attach it to the mass canister. Now it's it's really just doing all the same stuff as the arrays. It's it's you you got you, there's no changes. It seems like to how you control the solar arrays. It, you can pretty much do the same stuff. It's just collecting more power. That's right. Yeah, because again, we were able to take advantage of the existing infrastructure that we already yeah. have on ISS, right? So we have the the beta gimbal assemblies, the BGAs, and that's what that's what rotates and points the arrays toward the sun. And then we have the big solar alpha rotary joint, the big uh, gear that rotates all of the rays 360 degrees around every orbit. So th that rotates very slowly. Those BGAs are used to to bias the arrays toward the sun and also help us with that that long run shadow shading shading issue. Um, but but yeah, so it's really we were able to drastically increase the power output with a relatively, I mean, relatively speaking, simple modification because of how much other stuff we were already able to take advantage of. And that's where that's why Boeing, you know, Boeing integrates all this stuff for ISS. They're the prime contractor for ISS, so they're familiar with all the other hardware, right. and they were able to to find the right vendors to go build the components that we needed to to make this work. And it's not just the solar region, there were the mod kits, there was different companies that went and, and built that and those fly separately. We're actually getting ready to install mod kit for the next set of arrays. Um, it, the, the EVAs for those, that mod kit is, is next week. I don't, I don't know when this will air, but uh, on the 25th of August is when the next set of EVAs will be for uh, installing the mod kits. And then our next set of arrays, wings three and four, will arrive. Uh, they're slated for SpaceX 26 uh, next summer. Um, and they'll be delivered to KSC before that, but there's some other work that has to be done. Uh, part of what it was was what we call the, the flight support equipment, FSE, the, the carrier that actually the arrays are installed to so they can fly up safely in the Dragon trunk and they don't get damaged due to the launch vibration environment and things like that. And that, that also allows, that has all the grapple fixtures so we can extract it from the trunk with the robotic arm and position it to the to the right work site for the crew. So these are all the other components that the Boeing project had to go um, design and oversee and, and integrate all together. And a lot of that work is done at KSC after the sub-vendors kind of uh, build all these other components. Yeah, we saw a little bit of that during those, uh, during those, 
spacewalks. Um, essentially, they, they pulled out the flight support equipment with all the right stuff on, on top of it. And you're right, they put it right near the work site so astronauts can do a spacewalk. And that was essentially their their garage where they went and got all the tools necessary, all the, all the pieces so they can eventually carry it over to, to where it was ultimately going to be uh, installed. The installation was, was pretty interesting itself. Um, we had, there was a little bit of trouble to al aligning the solar array on the mounting bracket and they came up with, with some pretty cool workarounds to eventually get that thing secured. Um, do you remember yeah. what that was? Yeah. So we're actually uh, addressing that issue on the next, four arrays and uh, we've, cool. we've figured out what we need to go do to fix it. So hopefully that won't, it actually won't happen again because we're actually also going to test it on the ground. But um, essentially what happened was, so again, if you, if you imagine the way that the array is packaged, it's a, it's like a tube, but it's, it's, it's hinged, it's cut in half and there's a hinge. So, um, and that's the way it, 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 it flies up. So when we install it on orbit, we install um, one side, to the mod kit and that's what's called the soft capture system it's basically just like a latch and there's a slot on the on the irosa side and a latch on the mod kit side kind of almost like your a door latch right so hmm. uh and and one the crew installed one side that went fine because that was a straight on installation and then when it was time for us to open up the hinge and swing it over to uh soft capture it to the other side of the mod kit. So now we have the whole array kind of unfolded uh, from the middle. It's still rolled up, but it, it, the roll is now uh, both sides of it would be attached to the mod kit. As the hinge was swinging over, the slot on the solar array side was not wide enough uh, to when you were the, the angle in which the, the hinge was coming in on the, on the latch on the mod kit side we didn't necessarily fully account for uh, how that was going to hit the side of the slot. Uh, so we, we basically figured out we just need to make the slot a little wider, uh, which is easier said than done on existing hardware that has all the structural analysis and the stress analysis, but, but we figured it out. So, so what happened was that the, that latch was interfering with the slot. Now, fortunately, there was enough kind of play in the slot on the other side and the hinge to allow us to kind of strap it and pull it over so we can get it latched and i think this is something that we've all kind of fundamentally experienced if you've ever tinkered with anything around your house with a hinge on it and how like you you make all these measurements and you think you've got it lined up and then you go and and move the hinge over and you're off by a little bit because you because of that way that the angle of, yeah. the, of the hinge the sweep angle of the hinge doesn't quite line up with something that's that's you know just trying to, to mount with something head on and that's that's essentially exactly what would happen on orbit um, again, we, we figured it out. Uh, we actually just modified uh, the wings three and four where we sent them back to the machine shop and they machined out the slot a little bit wider. And we're actually going to do a test of it uh, when the array is completely built. One of the last things we'll do is we'll test it. They have a test stand out at DSS that will allow us to swing open the hinge and, and make sure it latches appropriately with, with the mod kit um, side uh, and uh, we won't have that problem anymore, which is great because it, it, you never want to launch hardware that you have to rely on the crew to come up with something on, on the fly to work around. It happens almost all the time, especially when you're interfacing hardware built by different people uh, and, and at different mm -hmm. times, existing legacy hardware as well. I mean, it's actually kind of amazing how few problems we end up having. And, and that really goes to show that we, we, we everything is very well documented. It all comes down to having very 
good, strict interface requirements where the critical dimensions are well-known and things like that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You, you got me chuckling over on this side for a bit because you were talking about, you know, just something that happens around the house. And, I, and Mike, I am like, I'm one of those people that when I try to hang a picture, you know how you can do everything, everything in your power to make sure the hooks are aligned just right. You bring out the level and make sure it's, uh, it's you know, perfectly level, completely parallel to the to the wall or the floor or whatever. And then you put it up and it's crooked. And you just yep. roll your eyes. Yeah, that that level of aggravation. I totally feel for for the engineers uh, if they if it's anything like hanging a picture. Probably a little bit more complicated, but a little bit more complicated, but similar <laughs> similar frustration experience. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely one of those people, so I do not envy them. But uh, this is part of a larger strategy. You already you already alluded to a couple that we're already starting the work to get future solar arrays um, to the space station. Now, the interesting part about this is there are eight solar arrays that are part of the legacy makeup and and that that picture of how you imagine the space station but we're only going to do six of them or we're only going to augment six of them now why is that mm -hmm. yeah so that's a really good question as well and i think it, it kind of gives good insight into a de the decision making progress and the kind of job we do over our, on the on the program off the side so you know starting back i think they started looking at wanting to do a, an iss power augmentation back in like 2015 2014 time frame because you know there's multiple organizations across the program we're looking at the current rate of, of solar array degradation what are our near-term power uh, usage targets what are our long-term power usage targets things like that and, and we, we realized hey we're gonna have a problem in you know X number of years so we need to start doing something about it and so then we just so now you have to go look at all right so now we've identified a problem we realize we have to go do something about it. now you got to figure out how much of the problem do you want to address? And do you have a need to completely address the entire problem? Or can you only, you know, do we need, or can we accept some smaller uh, fix? Because obviously that costs less money. It allows us to use that money for other things that we might need to go do. So it becomes a priority trade at that point. So when they were looking at the, the degradation rates of the solar arrays and the the also the power uh, draw requirements on each power channel, they're not all exactly equal. Um, some power channels are used to specifically power the ISS core systems, the things like the lights, the coolant pumps, the fans, all that stuff that keeps the crew uh, cool, comfortable, and able to work. There's other power channels that are specifically dedicated just for payload. Um, there's, you know, each module is powered by different power channels. What are our commercial uh, partners? What power channel are, are we going to give to them? our international partners, what power channels do they get from? What are their long-term needs? So we looked at all of that as a big detailed assessment and we identified that the first two power channels that we absolutely need to go do are the ones that we did, uh, uh, you know, this, uh, this, this summer, which were the 2B and 4B power channels. 2B is a core ISS power system. 4B is used a lot for, for scientific payloads and things like that, both internal and external. That was our oldest solar array, so it was the most degraded, so we kind of get the most bang for our buck there. That one was a no-brainer. Hey, we're definitely going to go build two solar arrays. Now it becomes a, well, if we're building two solar arrays, do we are we able to increase the amount of power on some of these other channels? And if we're already building two, do we want to build four, six, eight? What's the right number, right? For Do we get some sort of, is there, now that we've sunk in all this cost of the design, how many more do we want to go build to help solve our future problems? And you're balancing that against 
again, how much budget do you have? When do you have the budget? What are other things that you need to go do? It obviously mm -hmm. takes a lot of time and effort to go install these solar arrays with multiple EVAs. It takes up up mass on visiting vehicles. These are all very complicated factors that you eventually have to address. So then we, we kind of narrowed it down to we definitely need to do, that's how we identified with the six arrays then. We said, hey, mm -hmm. we definitely needed to do 2B and 4B. You'll have to forgive me because I forget which two we're, we're going to do next year right now. But those were the, that was like the next in line. Like we definitely want to upgrade these. And then uh, the last two, they're primarily being upgraded because that will uh, allow us to really make sure that we could give enough power to our commercial, uh, to the commercial module coming up. So that was kind of the priority order in the decision-making process. After that, the, the last two, they're the newest solar arrays. Those power channels maybe weren't as heavily uh, loaded, and we feel like that they could last, you know, as long as we need to for the for the space station. So again, it's kind of a you know it's a, that was a high level kind of explanation of all the variety of factors we look into. I'm sure there's other things that I'm forgetting, but it's 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 never just as easy as hey, let's go build this many things because this is how much power we'll need. Right, you got to go look right. at all of these other factors and and where you want to spend your time, effort, money other resources that are not necessarily obvious, like up mass and things like that. Yeah. And then there's the redundancy factor too, right? So so you said each of the power channels, you, you sort of prioritized it, but I'm sure there's into it is built, you know, we're, we're providing more than necessary just in case something goes wrong. We still have enough power to carry us through whatever. I'm sure that's built into it as well. Yeah, that's right as well. So again, you know, the internal systems there's redundancy there there's parallel uh, ddcu sets that allow one power channel having an issue the other uh, power channel can kind of pick it up and things like that and, and those are yeah. a lot on on our payload channels so that was also looked at it as well and and we kind of determined it's not well it would be useful to maybe go upgrade those last two power channels it's not the best cost to benefit ratio yep now I think I think another benefit here, and this is uh, I, I know we're we're running out of time here, so so I want I'll make this my last question is the okay. Rosa the Rosa technology is um you know we're we're using that you said you went through a lot of tests to to make it work for the needs of the International Space Station program and all this great stuff we want to do, but I think what's really cool is that that same technology is going to be used for future NASA missions. Um, mm -hmm. Rosas are going to be on the double asteroid redirect. Uh, test mission that's going to go on a probe and and uh, it's going to crash into an asteroid, uh, and then there's the gateway that's going to use them. They're going to be pretty pretty big on the gateway, but that's you know you're you're going to need power when you're in orbit around the moon. So so it's pretty cool that we're testing this technology now in low Earth orbit to prepare us for all this great stuff we have coming up. Yeah, that's exactly right, and you know that's that really is another key goal of the ISS, right? So not only do we want to facilitate science and research for um, industry and educational institutions and, and other agencies and things like that. But, but as an agency, we want to go beyond low Earth orbit. We want to try to develop the technologies and techniques that we need to go do that. So the ISS is, is a, an extremely valuable test bed for doing that. And the fact that we were able to go run a flight test of an IROSA, or it was just a ROSA at that time, on mm -hmm. ISS to validate that technology. And now we're able to operationally use them. We're going to learn more from that, that those lessons can then be applied to these future programs as well. I mean, it's just, I can't stress enough how valuable it ha it is to be able to use ISS continually for, for things like that. And even in my old job, when I was these life support projects that I was running, we were building 
life support systems for future exploration missions beyond low Earth orbit, and we're flying them to ISS and testing them, and they're going to replace the the core systems there. It's almost very similar. It's like an augmentation to some of the life support systems on ISS. It's ex almost exactly like what we're doing with these with these solar arrays as well. And it's just, uh, you know, the ISS has been an amazing asset in order in order to do that. And it's it's one of the ways that will make sure that we're successful uh, exploring deeper into space. And again, not only for human spaceflight, but for uh, um, yeah, un, uh, you know, non-human spaceflight or, or, or the, the, the probes that we send out, right? If we're some of these technologies with solar arrays or computer systems and things like that can be applied to other parts of the agency as well that aren't necessarily directly related to human spaceflight. So it's, it's very exciting. Absolutely. Mike, what a, what a perfect way to end uh, right there. This was absolutely fascinating, Mike, I got to say, because uh, I've been, uh, me personally, I've, I've worked on these arrays for, for years now, um, just, just getting ready and, and putting out the messaging, making sure that uh, we had an understanding of, of what the overall plan was and communicating that and then eventually executing the spacewalks. And this is by far more information than, than uh, I've uncovered in those years, you know, just in this short amount of time. So I really appreciate you taking the time to, to walk me through the, the, all, the, all the aspects of, of what's gone into making this solar uh, array and, and power augmentation plan a reality. So really appreciate your time, Mike. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it as well. And Happy to come back and talk more <laughs> at any other time. <laughs> I'll hold you to that. Awesome. All right. Hey, thanks for sticking around. I hope you learned something new today because I certainly did from Mike. It was his descriptions of the station solar arrays were absolutely amazing. And I've been following the solar arrays for quite some time. So uh, I hope you did learn something today. If you want to know what's going on on board the International Space Station, whether it's the solar augmentation project, project or, or something else aboard, even the science experiments that Mike pointed out, there's a lot that's coming up and it's all available at nasa.gov ISS. We're also on nasa.gov slash podcasts. You can find us there and listed along with uh, many of the other podcasts that are across NASA, the entire space agency. Make sure you check them out as well. Houston, we have a podcast, though, is on social media under the NASA Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show, and make sure to mention is for us at Houston. We have a podcast. This episode was recorded on August 16th, 2021. Thanks to Alex Perriman, Pat Ryan, Norma Moran, Belinda Polito, and Jennifer Hernandez. Thanks again to Michael Salopek for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on, and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be back next week.